This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the link to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. If you enjoy Forgotten Australia, I'd love it if you could help the podcast reach more people. The best way to do that is simply to tell a friend or two and to leave a review and rating at whatever podcast platform you use. Thanks in advance and on with the show. It's early May 1960 and John F. Kennedy and Hubert Humphrey are campaigning to win the all-important Democratic primary in West Virginia. They're both popular young senators, but whoever emerges victorious is going to have a good shot at being the party's presidential contender in November. Despite weeks of vigorous campaigning, Kennedy's initial lead has evaporated and polling now indicates Humphrey is set to win with 60% of the vote. For Jack Kennedy, it's do or die time. One of his electoral weaknesses is his Catholicism, and he spent a lot of energy reframing this as a question of tolerance. But one of Kennedy's strengths is his war service, and less than a week from voting day, his campaign exploits this ruthlessly by hitting his opponent below the belt. On Friday the 6th of May, Kennedy's top aide, Franklin Delano Roosevelt Jr., son of the Democratic president who led the US through the Depression and World War II, gives a speech in which he says of Hubert Humphrey, quote, I don't know where he was in World War II. Roosevelt claims there's evidence that Humphrey is only partly telling the truth when he says a hernia kept him from enlisting. 
Roosevelt claims that before being rejected as medically unfit in 1945, Humphrey had already requested numerous deferments from military service, that letters were written on his behalf to keep him out of uniform, and that he was turned down from the National Reserves with no reason given. Following up, an Associated Press reporter asks Roosevelt, quote, Did you call Senator Humphrey a draft dodger? Roosevelt replies, I've never said that, and I never meant that. I did not use that phrase. The record speaks for itself. The record does, and this slander against Hubert Humphrey has been debunked previously. But Roosevelt, acting on orders from Bobby Kennedy, the candidate's brother and campaign manager, isn't letting the truth get in the way of a chance to control the political conversation. He continues, quote, my whole emphasis on Senator Kennedy's war record is that any man who has known war recognises the vital necessity for peace. Then, with Machiavellian magnanimity, he allows, quote, It is also possible that a man who was not in the service could realise the same necessity. With West Virginia home to more war veterans per capita than any other state in the Union, the message here is crystal clear. Jack Kennedy served heroically in World War II. For whatever murky reason, Hubert Humphrey did not. Bottom line, who are you going to trust to be Commander-in-Chief? Returning from Washington later that day, Jack Kennedy takes the high ground and issues an angry disavowal of Roosevelt's controversial comment. Quote, Any discussion of the war record of Senator Humphrey was done without my knowledge and consent, and I disapprove of the injection of this issue into the campaign. In fact, Jack Kennedy is so angry with Roosevelt that an hour later they appear together, smiling for the television cameras. The next day, the Associated Press story about Humphrey's alleged draft dodging is printed in newspapers all across the country, with readers reminded that Kennedy has a, quote, distinguished war record as a naval officer aboard a patrol boat sunk by the Japanese in the Pacific. They also read, quote, Humphrey did not serve in the armed forces. He has claimed he was disqualified by a hernia. As for Humphrey, he issues a no comment and tries to keep on message, depicting Kennedy as a cashed up blue blood trying to buy the primary with, quote, the most lavish, extravagant and expensive campaign program West Virginians have ever known. Humphrey's not wrong about that. While he spent $23,000 campaigning, Kennedy dropped something in the vicinity of $1.5 million. Part of what his father's wealth buys, as has been the case in every congressional and senate election he's ever fought, are thousands of reprints of a 1944 Reader's Digest article describing how heroic young U.S. Navy Lieutenant Jack Kennedy saved the crew of his patrol torpedo boat after it was sliced in two by a Japanese destroyer in the Pacific. And... As far as campaign merch goes, for just a dollar, the faithful can buy souvenir Kennedy campaign tie-pins in the shape of that famous boat known as PT-109. Four nights after Roosevelt's slander of Hubert Humphrey, John F. Kennedy wins the West Virginia primary with 60.8% of the vote. Humphrey drops out of the race and Jack's on his way to being the Democratic presidential contender. For the next six months, PT-109 will play its part in helping him win the White House. The story so often repeated that when an author approaches Kennedy to write a book about his war experiences, he'll say, there's nothing more to tell. Yet, 
that isn't true. While Jack Kennedy is a genuine war hero who kept his men alive after PT-109 sank, the identity of the Coast Watcher who saved him and them from dying of thirst or hunger or at the hands of the Japanese on a tropical island in the Pacific has remained a mystery for the past 17 years. There's only one person on the planet who can tell that side of the story and he's a modest, middle-aged accountant living in Sydney, Australia. I'm Michael Adams, and this is the first part of the two-part Forgotten Australia episode, The Aussie Who Saved JFK. Arthur Reginald Evans, known as Reg, was born on the 14th of May 1905 in Sydney. He was the first child born to Stuart, who worked as a clerk, and his wife Edith, and the couple would have another son, Jeff, and a daughter they named Hilda. Reg grew up to be a slight figure, standing just 5'4", with light brown hair, a fair complexion, blue eyes set in a narrow face, and a wide and engaging smile. Young Reg was, as he'd much later tell American Cavalier magazine, quote, sea-minded, ship-crazy. More than anything, he wanted to be a sailor, and after finishing state school, he tried out for a cadetship at the Royal Australian Naval College at Jarvis Bay, only to be knocked back. Instead, as his military record at the National Archive of Australia shows, Reg did his bit with the Army's senior cadets and later attained the rank of lieutenant in the militia attached to the 7th Field Regiment. Seeking new horizons, Reg in 1929 went to the New Hebrides Islands, today known as Vanuatu, where he was the assistant manager of a coconut plantation. When the property changed owners, Reg went back to Sydney and landed a job with Burns Philp, the venerable trading and shipping company that had routes all through the South Pacific. Reg was dispatched to the Solomon Islands where he worked for the next decade in a variety of managerial roles before coming closest to his naval dream when in 1938-1939 he was the supercargo on the inter-island steamship trader Mamutu. This 300-tonne merchant vessel would steam between Solomon's ports, including those on Taro, Tulagi and Guadalcanal, with Reg in charge of cargo and its sail. As he'd later say to Cavalier magazine, quote, I got to know the islands like an old friend. Reg also made a new friend in the Solomons. This was 28-year-old Gertrude Slaney Poole from Adelaide. A photo of her in the Adelaide News in April 1937 shows a slender, attractive brunette, and her name was regularly mentioned in the city's social columns and in connection with her stage work in amateur theatre productions. In early July 1937, Gertrude set off on a four-month South Pacific adventure, acting as secretary to a very accomplished South Australian woman named Patricia Hackett. Patricia was a beautiful bohemian and one of Australia's few female lawyers, and we're going to look at her life in a future episode. Briefly though, Patricia, though just 29 years old in 1937, was already famous not only for defending a Syrian man charged with a sensational murder, but also for running her own theatrical company showcasing her own flamboyant performances, leading on one occasion to a bad review to which she responded by throwing ink on the critic. Patricia Hackett fell in love with the Solomon Islands, and learning that the country had no lawyer, she set up a legal practice, leased a private island, and kept Gertrude on as her secretary. 
So it was that Gertrude Slaney Poole stayed for 16 months, during which time she met and fell in love with Reg Evans. With England and its allies at war with Germany, in early 1940, Reg returned to Australia to enlist in the Navy. He was again knocked back. As he'd put it in his droll, witty way, quote, What use did they have for an old beachcomber like me, they wanted to know. So I said, to hell with you, and joined the army. Reg enlisted at Paddington in July 1940. If he was disappointed at not getting into the Navy, it certainly didn't show in the photos attached to his military records, with him wearing a delighted grin in both his portrait and profile shots. Maybe it was because he was in love. Just three weeks after the photos were taken, he got married, and Gertrude Slaney Poole became Gertrude Slaney Evans. Reg undertook army training, had some pre-embarkation leave with his new bride at Christmas time, completed more training and then sailed for the Middle East with the 2nd 9th Army Field Regiment arriving in Palestine in May 1941. Next he was in Alexandria in Egypt and then in Syria. Japan's entry into the war in December 1941 saw the 2nd 9th brought back to Australia the following March to counter the possible invasion coming from the north. Reg returned with malaria and, after release from hospital, he rejoined his unit briefly before inter-service transfers finally became possible in July 1942 and he applied for the Navy for the third time. As he put it, quote, they weren't so fussy this time. Reg joined the Royal Australian Navy in October 1942 with the rank of sub-lieutenant and undertook short courses, first at HMAS Morton in Balimba, Queensland, and then at HMAS Cerberus in Western Port Bay in Victoria. The latter, he quipped, was about, quote, teaching rough army types to be naval gents. Naval intelligence came calling for Reg in the form of a civilian named Walter Brooksbank. Reg recalled, quote, he knew more about my background than I knew myself. He told me they had a thorough checkup on me and said I was the sort of man they were looking for. There was a job for me in the Coast Watchers. I had never heard the name before. Few had because the program was at first obscure and then top secret. In the immediate aftermath of World War I, a coast-watching network had been proposed to give advance warning of any menacing foreign activity on Australia's northern shoreline. And this idea was expanded to include Papua, New Guinea, the New Hebrides and the Solomon Islands. Walter Brooksbank had done much of the organising, recruiting men living in these areas who had tele-radios to keep an eye on maritime activity, and he established guidelines and procedures for identifying and reporting suspicious shipping to the Navy. After Japan entered the war, the network was strengthened by Brooksbank's boss, Director of Naval Intelligence, Commander Rupert Long. It was this officer, whose nickname was Cocky, who explained Reg's mission to him. Reg recalled, quote, A Coast Watcher's work was not to fight or destroy. His job was to look and listen and gather information, to sit in hiding like a spider, right in the web of the enemy, but unseen and unheard. His duty was to communicate intelligence to headquarters and leave the rest to them. We became the eyes and ears of the Pacific. The commander of the Coast Watchers, Supervising Intelligence Officer Eric Felt, codenamed the organisation Ferdinand, after a bull in a popular children's book. 
The reason, Felt said, was, quote, Ferdinand did not fight, but sat under a tree and just smelled the flowers. It was an innocent image that belied the danger. Coast watchers operated in secret on remote islands, behind enemy lines, and surrounded by thousands and thousands of Japanese enemies who viewed them as spies. If discovered and caught, they faced torture and execution. That meant they depended on the help and protection of Melanesian islanders for their very survival. Islanders acting as scouts for coast watchers put their lives in danger too, but the Japanese, thinking they were simply fishermen, usually left them alone as they paddled between islands. Coast watching would also have had a personal element for Reg. After the Japanese entered the war, the Mamutu, the Burns Philp trading ship on which he'd worked before the war, was used by the Royal Australian Navy as a resupply ship. And on the 7th of August 1942, it was sunk by a Japanese submarine in Torres Strait with the loss of 114 lives. Four months after this tragedy, Reg Evans landed at Guadalcanal. This was shortly after what he called the Stoush and the Hullabaloo, understated descriptions of Japan's repeated unsuccessful attempts to recapture the island and its strategically vital Henderson Field. It was at Henderson that Reg settled in and learned the ropes. Then he was given his mission. He'd be taking up a coast-watching position on the island of Kolombangara in the Gizo district of the Western Solomons. Reg gathered provisions, a tele-radio to send his coded reports, a tommy gun and revolver, binoculars and a telescope. Then he was taken to a Catalina flying boat base on Florida Island. From there he was flown to another coast-watching station at Segi, behind enemy lines in occupied New Georgia, where Reg recruited a native named Malanga who spoke some English to help him to get to Columbangara. They went in a canoe, travelling at night, taking hours just to pass New Georgia's Munda airstrip, which was a hive of noisy truck activity as Japanese forces worked under cover of darkness to avoid Allied bombing. Ridge's new home of Columbangara was a forbidding sight. He described it, quote, Think of an olive green pyramid thrusting high out of the sea, 25 miles round and covered with jungle. Every bit as forbidding was that on the island's only flat land, Villa Plantation, there was a Japanese garrison of some 10,000 soldiers and construction of another airstrip was underway. Reg and Malanga landed at Kuji on the northern coast of Kolombangara on the 21st of March. Coast-watching scouts had already told the islanders that a new man was coming and so Reg got a warm reception. He recalled it this way, quote, the local chief, Rovu, bunged on a big welcome. The king of Siam couldn't have beaten it. This old man, hereditary chief to the Vanga Vanga coastal village, appointed himself as Reg's second in command and, with Malanga acting as interpreter, told the newcomer that he was actually no stranger to them. Reg would later say, quote, I looked at every face. Although I knew none of them, they all knew me from before the war. And that was a good thing. They were in my corner from the start. I had their goodwill. The islanders led him to a hut they'd built for him on a hilltop that, in the past, they'd used to watch for enemies coming from across the sea. This lair was 1,500 feet up and overlooked the airstrip and the sea approaches to Gizo some 10 miles away. There, Reg set up his radio and chose as his call sign GSE for Gertrude Slaney Evans. 
Obvious choice, he said, quote, There's nothing like some little touch of home when a man's on his Pat Malone in a jungle sweat hole behind the enemy lines with danger all around. Reds told the Colombangara Islanders that they'd be his eyes and ears and that they needed to keep tabs on all Japanese movements, land, air, sea, and report them to him. Reg would then relay what he and they had seen to headquarters. Of this work, Reg said, quote, We reported the number and type, bombers or fighters, of any aircraft heading towards Henderson. Headquarters had plenty of time to get ready for the impending trouble. His information, combined with that of other coast watchers like him dotted across the enemy islands, could keep track of Japanese movements better than any radar. Reg explained, quote, We had them dry gulched. They might as well have been heading into an ambush. The Yanks at Henderson were kept in the picture all the way. They knew what to expect and when to expect it. It was the same with Jap ships and barges. Our dive and torpedo bombers annihilated them. While his hilltop lair was a good vantage point, it was also sometimes above the clouds, so in mid-April, Reg moved to a lower spot. This gave him a better view of the airfield and Blackett Strait, and he set up in another hut that Islanders built for him from split bamboo. On the 8th of May, six weeks into his mission, Reg had a major victory from this hideout. At around three that morning, four Japanese destroyers coming through Blackett Strait steamed straight into a marine minefield that had been laid by the Americans. One of the Japanese warships sank immediately, and two others were badly damaged and ablaze. At dawn, the fourth unaffected destroyer was still picking up survivors when Reg spotted it. He sent an urgent message to HQ, and Navy bomber planes were scrambled. As he put it, quote, my best score was three destroyers in one go. A word to headquarters and planes sank the lot. This was grim, but it was also the job, and Reg took pride in getting results. Quote, when it was all over, we used to get the cricket scores. Bombers, fighting, shipping. It made good listening. The same day that he coordinated the sinking of those three Japanese destroyers, Reg welcomed an offsider, an American corporal named Frank Nash. He was, Reg said, quote, the only American, as far as I know, who ever became one of us. Despite his success with the destroyers and having Frank Nash's assistance, by June 1943, Reg was concerned that Japanese barge traffic through Blackett Strait and Ferguson Passage was increasing and they didn't have eyes on all of it. So he came up with a plan. Frank Nash would stay on Colombangara while Reg would relocate to Gomu, a small island on the other side of Blackett Strait. There, he'd set up camp in an old shack that had been abandoned by a trader. This new location on Gomu would put Reg closer to the waterline and would increase the scope of his and Nash's surveillance, with them able to share observations and intelligence across the water via walkie-talkie. But headquarters dragged its feet in approving Reg's plan, only doing so at the start of August and after, quote, I'd sent them a hot-under-the-collar urgent request. Then, in the early hours of the 2nd of August, as he was preparing to go to Gomu, Reg and Frank Nash saw a fire flare on the black waters of Blackett Strait. While Reg Evans was an obscure Australian serviceman operating in secret on a remote island, the man in command of patrol torpedo boat 109 was already by August 1943 something of a celebrity. 
John Fitzgerald Kennedy is one of the most discussed figures in history, and I'm not about to retell his life story in any detail. But there are a few facts, incidents, and relationships that help us understand how he came to be commanding a PT boat, and how afterwards he was lionized as a war hero, while Reg Evans would be, for nearly two decades, written out of history. John Fitzgerald Kennedy was born in Brookline, Massachusetts on the 29th of May 1917, the second of nine children born to Joseph Kennedy, son of a saloon keeper, and Rose, whose father was the mayor of Boston. The couple's first son, Joseph Jr., known as Joe, was nicknamed the future president from birth. Meanwhile, John, who'd be known as Jack, received the last rites at birth because he had Addison's disease. It wouldn't be the last time he was on the verge of death, and Jack spent much of his childhood and teenage years sick in bed. Contrary to myth, his father Joseph Kennedy didn't make his fortune as a bootlegger. Rather, he was a savvy stock market speculator who bought a Hollywood studio and later increased his fortune with legal liquor sales. Growing up, Jack, despite his poor health, enjoyed great wealth and privilege including private school, holidays at family homes in Cape Cod and Florida, and travel to Europe in 1937, where he witnessed firsthand the rise of Nazism in Austria and Germany. Back in America, Jack went to Harvard, where he was on the swim team and the football team, though the latter saw him sustain a back injury that had plagued him for the rest of his life. In January 1938, Joseph Sr. became President Franklin D. Roosevelt's ambassador to England, and his family accompanied him to London. When Jack came back stateside, he fell in love with a beautiful and wealthy heiress named Frances Anne Cannon. A year later, skipping spring term at Harvard, he returned to Europe, and in August, he was in Berlin as the war drums approached their crescendo. There, on the 20th of August, at the heart of Nazi Germany, Jack met a US diplomat at the American Embassy, and this man gave him a secret message he had to personally hand to his father back in London. The note advised that there would be war within a week. The timing was only slightly off, and on the 3rd of September 1939, when British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain declared war on Germany in the Parliament, Jack was in the gallery with his father and his brother Joe. Just four days later, Jack was pressed into service by his father to act as his representative and thus representative of the United States of America in Glasgow in Scotland, where his duty was to console the American survivors of the ship Athenia, which had been torpedoed by the Germans on the very first day of the war. Going back to America, Jack found that his girlfriend Frances, who he'd wanted to marry, had moved on and in April 1940, he attended her wedding to a rising young journalist named John Hersey. Jack threw himself into his Harvard thesis, titled Appeasement at Munich, which was based on some of his own experiences and information supplied by his father, and after he graduated with honours, it was published as a book called Why England Slept, and it became a bestseller. At just 23, he'd found celebrity as an author. Despite this fame and his family's wealth, Jack, having seen the European war firsthand and certain America was going to become involved in the conflict, signed up for the peacetime draft. Yet he failed his physical and was knocked back by the army. 
As was often the case with the Kennedys, family connections came into play and Jack was able to enlist in the Navy in August 1941, getting a desk job with the Office of Naval Intelligence in Washington, D.C. There, through his sister Kathleen, who was a journalist, he met and began an intense affair with a beautiful Danish reporter named Inga Arvid. Five years older than Jack, Inga was married, but that was far from the biggest obstacle to their romance. That was because Inga had interviewed Adolf Hitler on as many as three occasions in 1935 in Germany, and the Fuhrer had praised her as a perfect Nordic beauty and even hosted her as one of his guests at the Berlin Olympics the following year. The FBI suspected Inga, incorrectly as it turned out, of being a Nazi spy, and so in Washington she was under surveillance by G-men who were now increasingly worried that she was compromising her bedmate, young naval intelligence officer Jack Kennedy. Jack and Inga were aware that they were being recorded, but they didn't care and continued the affair until he was transferred to South Carolina. Even though they were no longer an item, they continued to write to each other. Now though, with America at war following the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, Jack had his other heart's desire, a posting to the patrol torpedo boat training program. PT boats were small, wooden-hulled vessels that, thanks to three engines, were fast and manoeuvrable, and equipped with four torpedoes, they were, at least in theory, potentially deadly to far larger warships. After completing a training course that qualified him to command a PT boat, Jack was promoted to lieutenant and it looked like he was going to be assigned to patrol boat duty in Panama. But again, using family connections, he got himself reassigned as a replacement officer for frontline duty in the Solomon Islands. Jack arrived at Guadalcanal on the 7th of April 1943, just as the Japanese launched their biggest attack since Pearl Harbor. Two weeks after this bloody baptism of fire, Jack took command of PT-109. Operating from their base on Rendover Island, the PT boats by night were used to harass Japanese barges carrying supplies to garrisons in New Georgia. They also patrolled Blackett Strait and the Ferguson Passage against the Tokyo Express, which was the nickname given to Japanese destroyers speeding through these waters on missions to drop soldiers and supplies to other island garrisons. At the end of July, decoded Japanese communications revealed that on the night of August the 1st, five destroyers would be coming down from Bougainville to bring supplies and soldiers to the Japanese garrison at Villa Plantation, which was right below where Reg Evans was stationed on Columbangara. Fifteen patrol torpedo boats, including PT-109, commanded by Kennedy and crewed by 12 men, were ordered to attack these ships, heading out on their mission after dark on the 1st of August. Later that night, having detected advancing Japanese warships which were steaming without running lights, some of the PT commanders went on the offensive, churning off into the darkness. But they did so with a chaotic lack of military strategy. And making a bad situation worse on this moonless, inky night, only a handful of the PT boats had radar, the commanders had been ordered to maintain radio silence, and their torpedoes had serious technical deficiencies. About 30 torpedoes were fired, and all of them missed their targets, allowing the destroyers to go on to their destination. PTs that had expended their ordnance returned to base, while other boats, including Jack's, remained on patrol. Following protocol, he was running slow on only one engine to reduce wake water that might make them a target for planes. 
At about 2.30 on the morning of the 2nd of August, the Japanese destroyer Amagiri, which had offloaded supplies and some 900 soldiers right below Ridge Evans' vantage point, was making its return journey north through Blackett Strait. Jack was in the cockpit at the wheel of PT-109 when a dark shape loomed out of the blackness about 250 yards off his boat's starboard bow. One of his men, Harold Marnie, who was in the forward gun turret, shouted, Ship at two o'clock. For a split second, Jack thought the shape was another PT boat. Then he realised it was far too big for that. It was a destroyer, bearing down on them at 40 knots. Jack tried to turn the boat to fire his torpedoes, but his PT boat was going too slow, and just 10 seconds after he'd seen it, the Japanese warship sliced right through his wooden boat. At impact, Jack was thrown hard against the left side of the cockpit, and he thought this is how it feels to be killed. But it was two crew members, Harold Marnie and fellow enlisted man Andrew Kirksey, who were killed instantly, their bodies never to be found. Jack found himself on his back on the deck staring up as the destroyer passed through his split PT boat. Then there was a tremendous roar as spilled fuel ignited on the sea's surface. Crew member Patrick McMahon, who'd been down below at the point of impact, was in the worst affected patch of water and suffered burns to 70% of his body. Jack rescued McMahon and two other survivors, and after the fire went out, he brought them to the bow of the PT boat, which had remained afloat because its watertight compartments hadn't been destroyed. Jack and the 10 other survivors of PT boat 109 would cling to this bobbing bit of wreckage through the night. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. After seeing the flash and the fire out on Blackett Strait, Reg Evans used the French telescope he'd mounted under a big tree to keep an eye on things. Quote, I thought I saw the wreckage of a boat and figures moving on it, but in the darkness it was too far away to see properly and I thought I was only imagining the figures. In the morning, Reg was still able to see the distant floating object, though it was now too far away for him to make out more than that. Not knowing there'd been a PT boat destroyed, he sent a message to HQ saying what he was seeing might be the wreckage of a Japanese barge. At 9.30 that morning, he got a reply from HQ that read, quote, PT boat 109 lost in action Blackett Strait, two miles southwest Marusu Cove. Crew of 12, request any information. This crew number was incorrect because HQ wasn't aware that a man named Ross had joined Kennedy's boat at the last minute. While Reg couldn't confirm what he could see was part of a PT boat, he did know that if there were any survivors, their best chance of staying alive was being found by his network of scouts. So he put out the word to all of his men, be on the lookout for the crew of PT-109. By the middle of the day, all that his scouts had found were three torpedoes that had washed up at Vanga Vanga. Reg reported this to HQ and received a return message saying that the PT boat had been destroyed between Vanga Vanga and the islands southeast of Gizo. Reg replied, quote, 
The coast is being searched. If any landed other side will be picked up by Guzo scouts. Late in the day, an aerial search was made by a New Zealand air crew, and though they spotted the wreckage, there was no sign that anyone had survived the sinking. In the days that followed, Reg's scouts found another torpedo, this one at Pilpili, and they searched Gizo but found no survivors. Reg reported this, and tele-radio messages continued back and forth with HQ as he watched the wreckage drift into a reef that, for positive identification purposes, was frustratingly out of his scouts' reach because their canoes would be smashed by the same powerful surf that had soon send what was left of PT Boat 109 down to the sea floor. What Reg and HQ didn't know was that Jack Kennedy and the other survivors had clung to that bit of wreckage all night and through the morning of August the 2nd. Of course, being exposed like that in daylight put them in danger of being strafed by a Japanese plane. But it was also their best chance of being spotted by a friendly search aircraft. Yet the Kiwi plane wasn't sent until it was nearly dark. Jack and his men didn't have that long. The bow was now taking water, and if it flipped, they'd all be hurled into the drink. So they decided to swim for a tiny island that they knew wasn't occupied by the Japanese. Clenching a life jacket strap between his teeth, Jack towed the badly burned McMahon the whole three and a half miles to the island, with the group taking four hours to reach this little spot of dry land. But the island had no food or water, and all they could do was hide in the jungle until dark. And when it was dark, in another act of bravery, Jack swam out into Ferguson Passage, hoping he could flag down a passing PT boat by firing shots from his 38. He had no luck. Two days later, he and Ensign Lenny Tom led the survivors on another long swim to Olasana Island, with Jack again towing the badly burned McMahon. At least this island had coconuts. On the 5th of August, more than three days after they'd been sunk, Jack and George Ross swam an hour to reach Nauru, also known as Gross Island. This was closer to Ferguson Passage and offered a better chance of signalling a passing patrol boat. On Nauru, they found a small canoe, some candy and crackers, and a 50-gallon drum of water. But they also encountered two of the scouts Reg Evans had dispatched to look for them. These men, Biku Gasa and Aroni Kumana, neither of whom spoke English, had come ashore to investigate a Japanese wreck. When they saw Jack and George Ross looking like wild men, they thought they were Japanese soldiers and so they fled into the jungle and then paddled for Olasana. There, they found the rest of the PT-109 survivors, but they couldn't communicate with them because they didn't speak English. Meanwhile, Jack and George Ross used the canoe to go out into Ferguson Passage that night to try to flag down PT boats. But there were none, and they nearly died in the attempt in high seas. When Jack and George Ross returned to Olasana, they found Gasa and Kumana with their men, and the Americans managed to make themselves understood. Jack got Gasa to take him by canoe back to Nauru, hoping again to flag down a friendly ship going through Ferguson Passage. But while they were there, Jack saw the distant peak of Rendover and had an idea. Though it was some 38 miles away, Gasa and Kumana could paddle there. But, as they didn't speak English, how would they communicate that the crew of PT-109 needed to be rescued? Seeming to understand this problem, Gasa indicated to Jack that he should carve a message into a coconut. He did, and it read, Nauru Island, Commander, Native knows position, he can pilot, 11 alive, need small boat, Kennedy. 
When Jack and Garza returned to Olasana, they found that Ensign Tom had written a message in pencil on a blank Burns Philp invoice that he'd found. His message read in part, quote, Native knows our position and will bring PT boat back to small islands of Ferguson Passage off Nauru Island. A small boat, outboard or oars, is needed to take men off as some are seriously burned. It continued, quote, Please work out a suitable plan and act immediately. Help is urgent and in sore need. Rely on native boys to any extent. Garza and Kumana took Jack's coconut and Tom's note and knew that the Americans wanted them to paddle to Rendova. But they also knew what they had to do first, and that was make a detour to Wanawana Island to pass news about the PT boat survivors to Benjamin Kivu, who was one of Reg's senior scouts. Benjamin knew that Reg was about to move with Malanga to Gomu, so he sent another scout there to wait for him. When Reg got to the little island, this scout told him the good news. Eleven men were alive on an island between Gizo and Ferguson Passage. Reg consulted his charts and concluded the men were on Nauru, a.k.a. Gross Island. As he'd later recall, quote, The first thing to do was arrange to get the CO out. I told Malenga to get some food together. Before Reg could radio the good news to HQ, he had to set up his equipment in his new base. And he had to put a plan into action. So, in the morning, Reg put pen to a sheet of paper whose letterhead read, On His Majesty's Service. Beneath this, Reg wrote, To the senior officer, Gross Island, I have just learned of your presence on Gross Island. I strongly advise that you come with these natives to me without delay. Meanwhile, I shall be in radio communication with your authorities at Rendova, and we can finalise plans to collect rest of your party. Sub-Lieutenant A.R. Evans. Reg gave this letter to Benjamin Kivu and he and six other scouts whose names were Moses Caesar, Jonathan Beer, Joseph Etta, Stephen Hitu, Kyoto Igolo and Edward Kido loaded up a big war canoe with food, water and cigarettes and got paddling. At 9.20, Reg radioed his headquarters, quote, 11 survivors PT boat on Gross Island have sent food and letter advising senior come here without delay. Warn aviation of canoe crossing Ferguson. It's not exactly clear how, but Benjamin Kavu and his scouts knew that the survivors weren't actually on Gross Island, but were on Olasana, half a mile away. But when they landed there and scoured the beaches, they found no one. So they went inland and, after two hours, found Jack Kennedy and his men hiding in a clearing. Benjamin Kivu handed Jack the letter that Reg Evans had written. And in his 1962 book, PT-109, John F. Kennedy and World War II, author Robert J. Donovan recorded the moment this way, quote, Kennedy who had barely smiled in a week, was tickled when handed a communication beginning on His Majesty's service by a black man naked, except for a cloth around his waist. Here he was, bearded, gaunt, unwashed, half-starved, half-naked, blotched with festering coral wounds, cast away on a miserable patch of jungle, surrounded by sharks, being greeted as if he was in his father's embassy in London. Meanwhile, Garza and Kumana and another scout named John Kari had paddled for 15 hours through rough seas filled with Japanese who might not take them for fishermen if they encountered them in the dead of night. But they made it to a naval outpost and from there were transferred a few miles by PT boat to the Rendova PT base, delivering Ensign Tom's note and Jack Kennedy's coconut. 
Coastwatcher HQ's reply to Evans relayed the news that these messages had been received by PTHQ, which was also aware of the rendezvous and rescue arrangements that Reg had already put in place. They were happy for him to direct these efforts and offered to send boats and anything else he needed to ensure the PT-109 survivors safe return. On Olasana, Jack and his men feasted on the food that Benjamin Kivu and the scouts had brought them, and then it was time for him as CO to be taken to meet Reg Evans on Gomu. He climbed into the canoe and Benjamin and the scouts covered him with dead palm fronds so he wouldn't be spotted by any Japanese plane flying overhead. Without this simple precaution, history would likely have been very, very different. That's because when the canoe was halfway to Gomu, several Japanese planes circled overhead. Jack asked if he could have a look. Benjamin told him to stay hidden. Boldly, this scout stood up in the canoe and waved to the planes. Just another harmless native fisherman with his friends. The Japanese pilots fell for it and flew away. Giving thanks to God for this narrow escape, the scouts sang hymns as they paddled onwards to Gomu. On Gomu, Reg and Malanga scanned the sea and grew increasingly anxious when no canoe appeared. He sent another message to HQ asking that the PT base send boats with life rafts to Gross Island. He was advised that three PTs would arrive there at 10 o'clock that night. Reg and Malanga kept watching and hoping. Then, as Reg would later tell Cavalier magazine, quote, it was late afternoon when we saw the canoe. We watched it coming over the silken sea in the broad daylight. A sitting duck if some nosy Jap should appear and spot a white man in it. Reg could only see the scouts. Quote, I thought they had come without the CO, that something had happened. Then I realised that they would have hidden him anyway, yet I couldn't be sure. But as the craft pulled in, the beaming faces of the boys told me our man was there. As the canoe came up on the beach, a young American threw aside the dead fronds and climbed out onto the sand. In Jack's version, he said, Hello, I'm Kennedy. And Reg introduced himself and said, Come up to my tent and have a cup of tea. Reg remembered it differently to Cavalier, with the bearded, bedraggled and sunburned Kennedy saying, Man, am I glad to see you. To which he replied, And I'm bloody glad to see you too. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. The second and final part of The Aussie Who Saved JFK will be released next week. Before I go, I'd like to give a shout-out to listener Jeanette Van Boxtel, who was the winning bidder in the charity auction of my Seven Signs series of books to raise money for Food Bank. If you'd like to help out Australia's most vulnerable people in these difficult times, go to foodbank.org.au. Forgotten Australia was written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Gundungurra and Darug people. As always, thanks for listening and take care of yourself. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.